0: evening. I'm not leaving. I I left my notes over here. I'd rather have them. (laughs) Thank you very much, Tim. (laughs) Well, um, I'm happy to say that as our our first conference, uh, men's conference here at Fellowship, I have to say, I myself have already been very blessed. Amen, amen. Thank you very much to to Jan and and Tom for bringing us the word this morning and early this afternoon. And uh, in the way that that only God can do uh, everything that Tom talked about is going to play right into what we're going to talk about tonight, which is just a wonderful thing that only God gets to do. I really hope that from your experience here tonight, you as well have also experienced the need for us to gather regularly as men to discuss these issues that are going on, especially with this topic that we're talking about, the lies that that men believe. Now, now whether or not you realize it, there is a war going on in our culture. I'm sorry to let you know, Sam. (laughs) be the bearer of bad news. No, but there whether or not you have used that terminology to describe it, the reality is there is a war going on in our culture, and, and the battle for in this war is being raged on, on many fronts. Right, I can throw out any topic, and you're gonna understand. Abortion. LGBT. Who can be a man and who can't be a man? We don't like to use languages like, War, words like war, because it's, it's such a harsh thing, but that's the reality of it. And and really, at the heart of it, what the war is in our culture is that they're warring with the image of God within individuals. That's why our culture has no idea what it means to be a man. Ultimately, there's there's this dissension in human thought, which we're not surprised by, right? I mean, I mean, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, a time is coming, and, and let you know, let me know let you know that. That time is now. A time is coming when people will no longer endure sound teaching, but gathering up for themselves teachers to suit their very own passions. They will reject sound teaching and wander off into myths. It's only in a culture that can look at at the the biblical narrative and and the command of circumcision in the Bible and and say that's genital mutilation, but they're totally okay with rearranging the reproductive organs of 10-year-olds. It's only in a culture that's been deceived can, can they look at the, the child sacrifice in the Old Testament to the, to the God of Molech, which rightfully so is an abomination, but they're perfectly okay for, with child sacrifice when it's for the God of self. Ultimately, our culture has been deceived. And they're deceived concerning manhood. And I want to I want to present to you that the reason that they're conceived or they're, they're deceived concerning manhood is because they have rejected the number one example of biblical masculinity, and that is Jesus Christ. We we often don't think about Jesus as a manly person, right? When I think about a manly person, I think of John Wayne, or or, or Chuck Norris, right? But the reality is that Jesus Christ is the manliest man to have ever existed, right? There's no one who's more fearless than Jesus. No one was more bold than Jesus. And the defining characteristic of manhood, which is, which is self-sacrifice on behalf of another, who has done that more than Jesus? Jesus. See, our culture is deceived and they don't know what manhood is because they don't know Jesus. And I would argue that we get so confused about what manhood is is because we neglect to look to Jesus. So that's what we're gonna do here for the rest of our time tonight. Uh, we've been talking about the lies that men believe in, and on a broad scale, we're talking about biblical masculinity. On, on a finite scale, we're talking about specific lies that we interact with on a, on a regular basis. So the lies that we're gonna talk about tonight are two lies in particular. First, we're gonna talk about the lie of anger, specifically I have the right to be angry when things don't go my way. And the second lie that we're going to concern ourselves with tonight is the lie of pain. The lie that pain and suffering are a bad thing. And as we look at these lies, we're going to look at a time in Jesus' life, in his ministry, of when he endured such of these things. And we're going to try to base what we should do in our life as men based off of what Jesus did in his life. Amen? And what I ask for you to do is, is... as we go through these, these lies tonight, uh, you're gonna be presented with, with some hard truths that come from the Word of God. And I just ask that if you're holding on to presuppositions, every single one of us, we hold on to these ideas about how we make sense of the world. I just ask that you please allow the Word of God to be the measure of your ideas. I really do believe that when we hold on to, to something that we, we believe is true, and if we measure it against what God says in His Word, if they are different, We will always choose God's word because it is better. Amen? Amen. So we're going to get right into it. We're going to start by talking about anger. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Mark chapter 3 in your Bibles. And if you have a phone, it's okay. You're no less saved. We won't judge you. So we're gonna look here at a time in in Jesus' life when he became angry. Now the culture, the culture will say that anger within a man is something that should be eradicated, right? The culture says that any form of aggression that you hold is something that is dangerous and you cannot become angry. There, There should be no aggression within a man. But, but that can't be true when we look at the Bible because Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter four. He says, be angry. That's a command in the Greek. That's an imperative. He's saying, be angry. The reality is, is that there are things in this life with which we as men of God should be angry about. It says, be angry and do not sin. Excuse me, my, my in-ears messed up this whole thing. It says, be angry and do not sin. So we as men of God, we have to know how are we to be angry righteously, right? So let's look at a time when Jesus was angry. In Mark chapter three, read with me verses one through five. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal the man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and his hand was restored. I want to point out three lessons that we can learn about biblical anger from this text. Three lessons, lesson number one. Righteous anger is directed at sin. Why was it that Jesus became angry with the Pharisees? Look look at verse four, it says, he asked them a question about the Sabbath. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And their response was silence. And so what the Pharisees are demonstrating here is the sin of pride. You see, the Pharisees, they prided themselves on their knowledge of the Sabbath. In fact, they even inflicted piles and piles of rules upon the Jewish people concerning the Sabbath, and they prided themselves on their ability to keep the Sabbath. And so Jesus comes along, and he's asking them a very simple question about the Sabbath. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm, to do right or to do wrong? and they have no answer. And I would suggest to you the reason that they're silent is because they know one of two things is gonna happen. If they answer him and they agree with him, saying it's lawful to do good, then all the people, well, first of all, they would have no ability to accuse him, right? We see that in other other chapters where Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees and they choose not to answer him because then they wouldn't be able to accuse him. But if they disagree with him and says it, say, well, it's lawful to do harm on the Sabbath, then the people would not follow them anymore, so they choose silence instead. And in their silence, they are demonstrating this sin of pride. And Jesus becomes angry with them for their sin. Lesson number one, righteous anger is directed at sin and sin alone. What does this mean? Practically, it means I don't become angry at anything that is not sin, right? I shouldn't be angry at my car in the morning when it doesn't start. That would be be a sinful anger. Or or I shouldn't be be angry with my circumstances, right? I'm a Patriots fan, I'm sorry about it, but I am. Thank you, I I knew there was at least one. My dad's over there too, there's two. We didn't have a great season. Should I be angry about that or shouldn't I? How about, how about becoming angry at someone else's righteousness? Right, like my wife pu- pulls me aside in private and she lets me know that I, I've responded with sarcasm to, to someone or I'm being rude in my response and I become angry with her for doing so. Is that, is that a righteous or a sinful anger? I mean, she's, she is righteous in pointing out my sin and I am sinful at being angry over that. Lesson number one, righteous anger is directed at sin and sin alone, but, there's always a but, our anger should also be mingled with sorrow on behalf of the sinner. That's lesson number two. Our anger at sin must be saturated with a grief on behalf of the person who is sinning. Look at verse five. It says, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Now this grieved is not an annoyance. It's not him saying, good grief, you guys have hardened hearts. It's a grief denoting sorrow, the kind of grief you would have at a funeral. He was sorrowful for them. Why, Why did he grieve? Well, he was grieving them because here they were, they're Pharisees, they're, they're people of God and they're claiming to know the truth and yet they are lost. And so his, in his anger at sin, his anger is also coupled with grief on behalf of them and a longing that they might know the reality of their sin, right? That they might know that their sin actually alienates them from God. Let me just stop right there and ask, does that describe you when you're angry? You know, would your family testify that when you become angry, you are filled with compassion? Lesson number two, our our righteous anger must always be directed at sin and mingled with sorrow on behalf of the sinner. Lesson number three, righteous anger does not seek vengeance. Righteous anger does not seek vengeance. Notice, this is one of those things that you can read in the text by noticing what's not there. What didn't Jesus do, right? Here the the Pharisees were, they were were sinning and their sin was directed towards him. Their pride was against him and he becomes angry with their sin. He's grieved with them over their sin, but he doesn't call about condemnation. He doesn't seek to repay them. He, he doesn't call them stupid. There, there, was no, there was no transaction that he sought from them, that they would take something from him in their sin and that he would take something back in his, in his repaying of that sin. But why? Why wouldn't he do that? I think, I think it's because Jesus understood what his earthly ministry was about and what it wasn't about. Jesus understood that vengeance belongs to God and not man. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so Jesus doesn't seek retribution from the Pharisees on behalf of their sin that they've committed against him because he understood that it was God's responsibility to repay sin, not his. And so when we are sinned against, it is God's responsibility to repay that person for their sin, not ours. Now that is a statement that is so easy to say and yet so difficult to enact. Because there's a, God has created us with this sense of justice, this longing for good to prevail over bad. And so when we experience sin on behalf of another person, how deeply do we want that to be justified? Our anger at their sin can be, or it can become sinful in and of itself when we seek vengeance as a result of their sin. What does this look like? Well, it looks like wrath being built up and poured out. Now, this can be done to their face, but it can also be done in your mind. Now, now it's hard enough when we are sinned against, but how much harder is it when someone we love is sinned against? There's this, there's this sense of what you're going to pay for what you did to the one that I love, right? I have a friend who uh, I'd asked their permission if I can share a piece of their story, um, but I, I promised them that I would keep their identity anonymous I have a friend who, who some time ago revealed to me that they were sexually abused as a child by a man. And, and as they're, they're pouring their heart out to me and they're telling me this, they, they said to me, they never told anyone. And this man never received any, any consequence. And as, as they were telling me this story, I became filled with anger. My my blood, it, it ran red and it just boiled because I was so mad at this man who had sinned against my friend. And rightfully so. That, if it were there, there's one step. That's the first step. I was angry at the sin. But let me tell you what I didn't have. I did not have any compassion for this man. And instead, I allowed for my wrath to build up inside of me. And for the next few weeks after this, I, I, became, I began to think about this man, I began to fantasize. If I was ever to stand face to face with this man, what would I do? And I began to, to fantasize and believe and imagine that I would craft this carefully worded monologue to him so that I can cut him deep and he would understand the depth of his sin so that he might, he might pay for what he had done. But ultimately, this is what I was doing. God convicted me of my anger and he gave me a verse. It was, it was James 1:20, and it says, the wrath of man cannot produce the righteousness of God. And I became convicted over my wrath towards this man. And I realized that I, my wrath towards him and my anger that I was holding on, my sinful anger was a lack of faith in a God who is just. What I was saying was is if I could ever stand before this man and pour out my wrath upon him, I would feel better. That's what I was thinking. And ultimately what I'm believing is that the wrath of almighty Joshua Cheatham is sufficient to repay the sin rather than believing that the only thing that is sufficient to repay sin is the wrath of God. So when I build up wrath inside of me, for sins that have been committed against me or against the ones that I love. I fail to exercise faith in a just God who has claimed that he will repay, that vengeance belongs to him. I ask that the Lord would forgive me for my unrighteous anger and that he would take my wrath. I asked that he would take my wrath from me. And as I was praying and asking for forgiveness, I realized something. I realized that one of two things was gonna happen over this man. Either the first one, he rejects Jesus, and one day he stands before a God, and he bears the wrath of Almighty God for his sin. Or, or, he comes to know Jesus as his savior and he calls him king. In which the wrath of God for that sin would have been laid on the back of Christ. Either way, justice will be done. And I don't have to do anything about it. It's not up to me to bring about justice. And that helped me to to give up my wrath let me tell you something. You know that you're not sinning in your anger towards someone who sinned against you when you prefer the latter of those two statements over the former. If you can look at someone who has sinned against you or against someone you love and earnestly desire that they would know forgiveness from God, you know you're not sinning in your anger. Lesson number one, our anger must be directed at sin and sin alone. If it's directed at anything else, it is sinful in and of itself. Lesson number two, our anger must be saturated with sorrow on behalf of the sinner. And lesson number three, our anger must never seek to avenge. And when we give vengeance to God, it is an expense of faith that gives him glory. Amen? Amen. That was the first lie concerning anger, I can go on about it and I can talk about it longer, but I really do want to give a good amount of time talking about our next lie. And that's the the lie of pain and suffering, specifically that pain and suffering are always a bad thing. In your Bibles, you can turn to the book of 1 Peter. That's where we will be primarily. Now, skeptics of Christianity would cite the issue of pain and suffering as the number one reason why people don't believe in God. And they would be right. They claim that how can a good and just and all-powerful God allow for evil in this world? And, and they see those two as conflict, therefore there is no God. And, and they have a valid argument from their limited understanding. And the reality is for us too, earlier, earlier this afternoon, we talked about Job and the sufferings of Job. What was his question? His question to God was why? why do, am, I, am I enduring this? And when we go through trials, when we go through suffering, our question is always, why, God? Now, our culture will tell us that any degree of, of suffering or, or, or trial should be eradicated, that that is the problem. That's why it's socially unacceptable to offend someone. That's why you must use the proper pronouns when you're talking to someone in our culture. It's not acceptable to, to offend someone because to offend someone is to cause them emotional or psychological or mental distress or suffering. And so suffering is in, its, in, a, in and of itself the bad thing. And so you yourself, when you bring about that offense, are, are being a perpetrator of evil in that way. That's what our culture believes. The word of God says something different about suffering. Now, the Bible clarifies that there are two different types of suffering. I want, I want to clarify this. Um, Peter makes it clear in chapter 2 when he's talking about suffering on, on because of your sin or suffering because of doing good. And so there's, there's a degree of suffering that we endure because of our sin, but there's also a degree of suffering that we endure that seems to be about circumstances that just comes about in our lives. And what we're gonna do is concern ourselves with the second one. We're not gonna talk about the the suffering that comes about from sin. We're gonna talk about the suffering that comes about just seemingly randomly, you know, bad things happening to good people. And as we go through this section on pain and suffering, again, I just wanna ask you to hold your preconceptions about suffering and pain in this world. Hold it up to the word of God and let the word of God measure it. Ultimately, what we're going to see is that the suffering that we endure in this life is intended by God to conform us to the image of Christ Christ and pervade us with our highest good. The suffering that we endure in this life is intended by God to conform us to the image of Christ and pervade us with our highest good. We're going to look here at 1 Peter chapter 4, Verse 19, that's, that's one of those, this is one of those verses that you should highlight in your Bible. It says this, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And what I wanna do is I wanna direct your attention to one word in this, in this verse, and it's the word creator. Now this word in the Greek, it's kistestis, and it's the only time in the, in the whole New Testament that this word appears. It's the only time that this word is being used to describe God as a creator. So it begs the question, what is God the creator of? Now, our gut wants to say the world. Our gut wants to say everything. And, and, and that's, that's a good response. But as good Bible expositors, we have to look at the context of the passage, okay? Okay. So if you want to bear with me, look at the first verse of that paragraph. That would be verse 12. Verse 12, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though it were something strange happening to you. So when Peter is speaking about God as the creator in verse 19, he's not speaking about God as the creator of the world, though he is, He's speaking about God as the creator of the fiery trial that these faithful Christians are enduring. That is a hard statement. We don't like to think about God in this way as someone who would create trials in my life. We often say things like, he doesn't, he doesn't create a trial, but he just allows for trials. We say, we say that word as if it somehow intellectually escapes and removes God from responsibility in the trial we're going through. I wanna ask you to consider the person of Christ. Just like we did when we were talking about anger, we're gonna look at Jesus as we look through pain. I wanna ask you, was the suffering of Christ something that God allowed to happen? Or was the suffering of Christ something that God orchestrated? When when Jesus hung on the cross, was it something that that the world came up with, that that man came up with, and, and God said, okay, that's a good idea, I'll bring about the redemption of humanity through it? Or was it something that God intended and even orchestrated to happen? Paul writes this in Galatians chapter four, verses four and five, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul uses the phrase, the fullness of time. In other words, exactly at the right moment when God intended, he sent Jesus into the world and exactly at the right moment when God desired it to happen, Jesus died and he endured suffering that you and I could never even imagine. The suffering of Christ was not something that, that the world, that, that, that the devil came up with and then God decided to bring good as a result of it. The suffering of Christ was something that God created. God intended. It was always his plan that the son of God might become the sacrificial lamb. And in the same way that God intended for the suffering of Christ, Peter is saying that God intends that you and I would endure suffering as well. Now there needs to be a clarification here because if if we don't clarify what we mean by God is the creator of our trials, we can find ourselves in some really sticky water and some messed up theology. So keep in mind that God is not the creator of our trials in the sense that evil has come forth from God upon us. God is not the source of of evil that, that we are enduring in our trial, right? First John 1.5 makes that very clear. It says, in him is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And when there is no darkness, no darkness can come, from, f- come forth from him, right? God, God does not create our trials in the sense that he gives evil from himself, but he does. God is the creator of our trials in the sense that in his perfect will and plan that he is orchestrating, he uses the disobedience of man and the evil that is sourced from within man for his ultimate good. We see that clearly in, in the example of Pharaoh, right? The, the evil that the Israelites endured as a result of Pharaoh, it was sourced within him. But the word says that God hardened his heart, Why? So that through the evil that was being sourced from Pharaoh, God might be glorified in his destruction. And so God creates trials in our lives so that he might be glorified. And he does so by orchestrating the disobedience and evil of man for his ultimate good. But that's still leaves us at a place of come on that's so hard like how and we still want to know the question of why we still want to know the question of why now i'm going to i'm going to give an answer that i think i think that peter gives from from his book as to, as to why god would would create Trials in our lives. I want to present to you this reason, based off of what Peter says in one Peter chapter one verses six and seven. But beforehand, I want I want us again consider in in your logical part of your mind consider Christ. Christ endured a trial that God had intended that he would endure and what happened as a result of that enduring of the trial, right? Two things happen. I think, I think a lot of things happen, but ultimately two things happen. Number one, he brought about the redemption of mankind. Amen. Isn't that a great thing? You see, we, we like to talk about God orchestrating trials when we think about Jesus and we think about how we benefit as a result of that trial that he went through. That was one thing that happened. But the other thing, the second thing that happened as a result of Jesus enduring this trial was he received the highest glory imaginable, right? Paul Paul writes in Philippians chapter two that, that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God highly exalted him, giving him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So as a result of this trial that Jesus endures, faithfully endures, God highly exalts him. So God brings about good in a way that we could never imagine, and God brings about glory on behalf of the one who went through the trial. And what I wanna pose to you is that he does the same thing for us. First Peter chapter one, verse six and seven says, in this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we know in Scripture that when Jesus returns, he is going to receive an, an immeasurable amount of glory that we could never even comprehend. But the reality is, is that scripture also teaches that you and I, as the faithful exiles in this world, will also be the recipients of glory. When he says that, that your faith may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor, that he's talking about praise and glory and honor that, that the believers would inherit. And Paul writes it this way in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, if you join in the sufferings of Christ, you will also join in the glory of Christ. And so, and we know this from experience, right? Look at someone who you know in this world who has gone through intense trial and they maintain their faith. And don't you just admire them. They're receiving glory from you. There, There is an, a nobility. There is a nobility within suffering particularly suffering that endures through faith. Now, now any answer that I can give for the question of why suffering, I can give a lot of answers. I think the Bible gives a plethora of answers to that question. But I want us to keep in mind that any answer that we can give to the question of why suffering, it is not sufficient to take the pain away of the trial. No matter how much I understand of why I'm going through what I'm going through, it's still going to hurt. So it's not sufficient to take the pain away. However, the answers that we can give to the question of why suffering are sufficient to remove the temptation to despair and bring about hope. And if I can't think of an answer for the question of why suffering that doesn't give me more hope than the fact that I will be glorified by God, that God will commend me as a result of my faithful endurance in these trials, I can't, I can't think of a better one. Ultimately, all trials that we endure are a test of our faith. They're, they're a test of how, how, how greatly we value our faith, right? It says, it says, as a result of these trials, your faith would be tested to be genuine in verse seven. That it would be, it would prove to be more precious than gold. Right? I've heard it explained this way that that when when your house is on fire and you're holding on to everything that you hold, that you love, that you value in this life, the things that you value least are the first things you're gonna drop. And the person who has in genuine faith, the person whose faith is not genuine, that faith is going to be lost. But the one who has genuine faith will recognize its value and hold on to it no matter what. Jesus says in Matthew 13 that, that the, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that is found in a field, and when a man finds it, he goes and sells everything that he owns so that he might buy the field and attain the treasure. That's genuine faith. But in genuine faith doesn't have that value. And so if, if someone is saying they claim to follow Jesus, they love Jesus, and they're going through hard times in their life, and they're gonna say, all right, Jesus isn't real. God's not real. Their faith was ingenuine because they did not recognize the value of it And God gives us these trials. He gives us suffering so that we might recognize that our faith is the most valuable thing that we hold on to, the most valuable gift that we have ever been given. And at the end, when we go and see God, he might say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And as, as I was thinking about this, as I was thinking about this, this concept of God glorifying us as a result of our faithful endurance. It's hard for me to imagine. I mean, I went, I went to, to Baptist Bible college and, and they tell us the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God. And right, so, rightfully so, don't get me wrong, that's absolutely true. God orchestrates everything ultimately for his highest glory, amen? Amen. But here's the reality of it. God is all the more glorified in my glory. If a player is on a field and he excels, he receives glory for his excellence, but his coach also receives glory, right? His, his coach is glorified as a result of the player's performance. And the same thing is true. It's, it's a, good, a good logical connection here. When we receive glory, God receives all the more glory because he's the one who enabled us to have faith in the first place. The question is, are you willing to have faith and belief in God that one, he is going to bring about good that you can't even imagine, and two, that you will receive glory as a result of your faith? Are you going to maintain that belief when you're mocked by your family because of your faith? Are you gonna maintain your faith in God when you lose your job because your views are too intolerant of the culture? You know, I really do believe that there is going to be a time in this country eventually when I will be put in jail because I'm teaching my child that only a boy can be a boy and only a girl can be a girl, which is the biblical perspective. Are you, are you gonna sing praises to God while sitting in a jail cell because you're unwilling to compromise on his word? or Are you going to let go of your understanding and lean on his understanding when, when there's so much pain in your family, and say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I believe that you're doing good. We started out our session by by addressing the need for, for us to meet and discuss, primarily because of the culture. The culture has no idea what they're talking about. They have been deceived. but also because we are all too easily deceived by them. We talked about anger and we talked about righteous anger, what that means. And if you're, if you're like me, you're a person who struggles with anger, are you willing to believe that, that God is just and he will bring about good from another person's evil? And linked in with that, are you going to share compassion towards those who've sinned against you? Now, if you want to be a real man, if you want to be a man like Jesus was a man, you will show compassion to those who have sinned against you. And let me tell you something. If you are someone who is going to get mocked and you respond with grace, you will be an awfully strange and wonderful person. And lastly, we just talked about pain and suffering and, and this almost baffling idea that, that Peter gives, that, that God is the creator of trials. Are you willing to maintain your faith in God when it seems like everything has just gone to hell? I'd like like to close with a passage that that Paul gives, a a word of encouragement for you as we head to small groups. Paul gives in 2 Corinthians chapter four, he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inward self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. but the things that are unseen are eternal. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you I thank you for the example that your son has given us. I thank you that he was a real man. God, I pray for each and every man in this room and for myself, Lord, that, that we would strive to base our masculinity on Christ. that we would be angry at that which needs to be angry about. Lord, and that we would voice that something is wrong when it is wrong. But Lord, I also ask that we would be filled with compassion and grief for those who sin against us, God. I pray that you would create a desire within us to bless those who persecute us and to return race for evil. And God, when when it seems like our circumstances in this world are the worst they've ever been, God, I pray that we would maintain our faith that you are good and that you are doing good. God, I pray that in our faith, in our trials, that it would be an example, a shining example of how good you are to those who you love. Be with us as we go and, and have small group, Lord. And I pray that you would just bless the discussion. Pray us all in Jesus' name, Amen.